Before we get into this episode, I just want to say a huge thank you to our supporters, Festival Republic. You've probably spent a weekend in a field with them at some point. They put on some of the UK's best known festivals and they're also leading when it comes to sustainability. From powering their events with cleaner energy to sending zero waste to landfill, they've already switched single-use plastic bottles to those made from recycled materials, brought in deposit return schemes for cups and trialled ideas like labelling the carbon footprint of the food on sale. They're also active in greening the music industry more broadly. They signed up to Music Declares Emergencies pledges and they're a driving force within Vision 2025, a body bringing outdoor events and climate goals together. Sounds Like a Plan is all about ideas and solutions, so it made sense to me to team up with one of the most proactive festival organisers out there. One of their main events is the beautiful music, art and wellbeing festival Wilderness, which takes place in Cornbury Park, Oxfordshire from the 4th to the 7th of August 2022. Early bird tickets are on sale now, so head to wildernessfestival.com forward slash tickets. That's wildernessfestival.com forward slash tickets to get yours. So big up Festival Republic for their support and their essential work. They say their job is to preserve the live music experience for generations to come. And that is something we can all get behind. Hello and welcome to Sounds Like a Plan, a podcast all about how the music world is taking action in the climate crisis. My name is Greg Cochran. I'm a journalist and podcaster. And I'm Faye Milton, co-founder of Music Declares Emergency and a musician with the band Savages. And this is where Series 2 really gets going. This time on the podcast, we are talking solutions with a huge guest, artist, producer and co-founder of the recently launched Earth Percent Project. It is Brian Eno. Yes, what a legend to welcome to the podcast. Find out what happened when Greg and I got to talk all things climate with Brian in a cupboard at his studio. A surreal and amazing experience. It really was. Um, Plus, we will leave you with some recommendations. So let's get into the podcast. Hi, everyone. We count ourselves super lucky to have welcomed on some fantastic and varied guests onto this podcast so far, speaking to people about their passions and feelings and actions on climate change, the environment and nature and how they merge together with what they do in music. We've had some really influential people, a deliberate mix of some names that you'll know and some names that we think that you should know. Um, And you've probably heard of this week's guest. It's Brian Eno. Faye, we got the opportunity to record this week's guest conversation in real life which was the first time we've done that since we started the podcast what do you remember from the day that we went to go and meet Brian Eno wow um it was such a fun day and of course we sat in a cupboard <laughs> you cannot forget that we will be sharing photo evidence of that <laughs> yeah we went to Brian's studio which is obviously like a, a great studio space um and there was building works happening in on the roof. So the only place we could actually get quiet during this time was in this kind of broom cupboard, which uh, was kind of hilarious. So just random artifacts everywhere. And we managed to build a makeshift studio in inside a cupboard and all kind of squeezed in. It was quite cozy, wasn't it? It was cozy. And it was surreal because... Um I don't know. I think you've met Brian before. I, I've not. This is my first meeting with Brian. So I was obviously incredibly scared to go meet a legend like that. 
as a person that speaks on climate and acts on climate in and is also involved with music, Brian Eno is a well-known figure in that respect, right? Like he's he's spoken on this subject for for quite a long time. Like he's well known in in these circles. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And not just speaking about it, but taking action as well. So he's um, mm. uh, co-founding the group Earth Percent, who are amazing, mm-hmm. and he's also a big advocate of Client Earth. Now, I think we talk about both of them in the interview, but for shorthand, Client Earth are a group of lawyers um, basically protecting Earth as their client, which is incredible. They do amazing, powerful work all around the world. So that's really interesting. And Earth Percent is a really great organization sort of bringing music into funding climate causes, basically. But we'll talk about that more in the interview. I think Brian says it better than I before we get into this conversation, I want to say a big thank you to all of our uh, listeners, all of to all of you, and um, for, for for listening and sharing episode one of this new series. Um, honestly, I, I mean, I must admit, I felt a little bit rusty coming back after we'd had a short break, and um, was a bit worried that we might have left you a little bit doom and gloom. But I'm I'm pretty sure that this conversation you're going to uh, hopefully enjoy today, and the others we've got prepared for you over the next few months are definitely going to kind of fill you full of hope and knowledge, and uh, in, and and, want, and make you want to kind of engage with lots of the stuff that you hear about. Do drop us a message. Uh, and let us know what you think of this conversation that we've had with Brian and his new project. We are on Instagram at Sounds Like a Plan Podcast, and we've also got an email address too. We are Sounds Like a Plan Podcast at gmail.com. Also, just a very quick thank you. Like, I mean, the people that supported the, the launch of this new series of podcasts, lots of um, publications wrote about us. We're so fortunate to have people helping us spread the word. Thanks to all of those from, I mean, we, we made it into Rolling Stone fame. I mean, what about that? <laughs> That's know, cool, right? That a climate a podcast on Rolling Stone <laughs> um, and Enemy and Kerrang and Music Week and all those who've shone a light on what, what we're doing here. So thank you so much. Shall we actually get around to introducing our guest today? Yeah, I think so. I feel like we've, we've, um, we've titillated we've everyone. Built we've built it up. People are <laughs> chomping at the bit to to hear the voice of the big man himself so i'm not going to list all the achievements and credits of brian eno because honestly we'd be here for hours one of the most influential musicians of all time he's collaborated on some of the greatest albums ever made and he's the co-founder of an impactful new organization that brings together the power of music to act in the climate emergency i sort of can't believe that i'm saying this this is brian eno on sounds like a plan Brian, welcome to Sounds Like a Plan. It's a great privilege to have you on the podcast with us. I'd like to start by asking about Earth Percent, which launched earlier this year. Talk us through what Earth Percent is and what it aims to do. Earth Percent has started by a small group of people from the music business, realising that there's a lot of money passing through the music business. And we thought, wouldn't it be smart if we could divert a little bit of that towards somehow dealing with climate change? in two ways really. One is in greening the music business itself so that it stops being quite so carbon intensive as it is, Mm. but also in terms of raising enough money to actually fund organisations that are really doing something useful in climate change. And we, I think we settled on the music business first because we know about it, but also because the particular way of raising money that we were thinking of applies particularly well with the music business. Essentially what we're saying to people is, would you like to insert in your income stream a little diversion that sends a percentage of it towards us and we will then disperse that to the best organisations dealing with climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, It it works particularly well in the music business because it's it's a system that is already used to dividing 
income up in lots of different ways. And in fact, nearly every single record and song that you've ever heard of has a kind of different financial structure. Mm. There isn't really a standard way of doing things. You know, there are always different numbers of people involved and there are different roles like producers and agents and managers and so on and so on. So everybody's used to the idea that their income stream is tapped in lots of different ways. So we're saying, why don't you put another little tap in there Hmm. and we'll divert that towards the planet. And was it born out of this sense that you knew there were lots of people within the music community who wanted to do something on climate action, uh, but didn't necessarily know how to go about it? Was that, is it, is it sort of, is it meeting the demand of knowing that there are people out there that wanted to do something? The feeling I had for quite a long time now is that there's always been a willingness to engage but always quite a lot of confusion about what to engage with exactly Mm. Um, and indeed that does require some research and some specialist knowledge and one has heard many stories of people putting a lot of money into projects that then didn't really work out so so you really need two things you need First of all, a sense that what, what you're putting the money into is really significant, that that's the best place you could be putting the money. But the second thing I think you need, and and perhaps we're uniquely placed to offer that, is some sense of continuity. So you want to know what happened to the money, what's, what's happening going forward, what does the organisation plan to do in the future, and you want to be able to keep an eye on them. So, mm. you know, we imagine a future in which we might be um, sort of funneling quite a lot of money to different organisations. And we want to make sure that they're working well. And we want to, of course, review new organisations that are coming on stream. And there are absolutely thousands of them. Mm. There's There are so many organisations now starting to work on climate change. And... Um, most of us don't know anything about them. Some of them are very small, but they could be very important. Mm. I could give you some examples of those later. But, you know, there are, there are obviously the big organisations that we've all heard of. But then there are lots of smaller groups who are doing very interesting new work. Mm. And they need support as well. Is that mostly to do with um, the, the technology side of things? People that are starting like, like startups with innovations, things that could be applied at scale and help the music industry? Is that is that the type of thing? It's um, you're seeing coming through? There are things like that. The difficult thing to talk to people about is how far back down the chain do you go? Mm. For instance, um, and this is a set of decisions that we have to make as well. For example, it turns out that just giving money to women in developing countries is a very good strategy for improving the world. Mm. <laughs> but you make sure you give it to the women. <laughs> now... If, if you address that to climate change, you think, well, that's, that's a little bit remote, isn't it? But it isn't really remote because um, what women tend to do, far more than men it seems, is to put the money into useful long-term projects like um, making their farms more efficient or starting up small businesses. Um, and so that, that kind of thing turns out to be very important mm from a climate change point of view but it's not an you, there's an explanation required you know it's much less easy to understand that than sort of conservation of mm. groups mm. of animals planting or, trees or, or planting which trees. is also really useful but yeah. it's yeah some things aren't quite as straightforward and linear that's right and and some of those less straightforward ones actually have a huge amount of 
leverage. That's to say that they're so far back down the chain that if you can make a little change there, you affect a very big change mm. in the longer term. So Earth Percent are dividing money from the music industry between um, lots and lots of uh, really impactful different organisations. So how do you decide which organisations you're going to pick and, and who decides that? That's a very good question. So this thing really started out with Adam and I thinking that we would really like to find a way to support Client Earth specifically. Mm. I'm a trustee of Client Earth and I've always been interested in seeing how we could somehow find new ways of raising money for them. Um, in fact, one of the ingenious ways I, I thought of years and years ago, which worked quite well. Do you know, before any band goes on stage, they play a tape of various things that they like, mm. yeah. various other songs that they like. Yeah. And, of course, they're playing in huge stadiums. So there's a, there's a performance fee for all that, mm. which is played by, paid by the stadium, yeah. actually. Um, so I thought, hmm, wouldn't that be interesting if you could have a song that lots of bands would play before they go on, which benefits Client Earth. Wow, okay. So I, I made a piece, actually, and Coldplay took it on one of their big tours. So it was just one among a dozen or 15 pieces that played. But it um, it made really quite a lot of money in, quite in, in the space of one tour, you know, for Client Earth. So... So anyway, this was sort of the beginning of thinking, how could you use different ways of making money other than just sort of going up to people with your hand out and saying, give us some money mm. in the normal way? What, what would be a different sort of system? And Adam and I came up, well, Adam really came up with this idea of taking a percentage from various income streams. Um, and we suddenly realised that actually that could produce really a lot of money if we got everybody mm. involved in it. And so we thought, well, this is probably bigger than just Client Earth. Yeah. This, we could actually support a lot of different projects like this. So, of course, the first question then was, well, which projects would they be? So we started looking into that. And that meant we really needed to recruit an advisory board of people who would actually be able to answer that question mm. on the basis of some research. And we have a really, really great advisory board now. So I think that question will be answered extremely well. Mm -hmm. um, we have um, Professor Brian Cox. He was one of our first advisors. Um, we have Tamsin Edwards, who does a. She's a great person, and she does this wonderful thing on Radio Four. I don't know if you've heard it called Thirty Nine Ways to Save the World. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that. it's such a good series, and and her role in that is to sort of evaluate. Mm. You know, what difference would it make if we could think of a way of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere? What difference in percentage terms would that make mm. to um, the problem? So so we have a number of people like that who are, first of all, alert to the types of issues, but also are alert to the kinds of solutions that are now coming up. Because as I said earlier, there are so many new organisations dealing with facets of this issue that all need to be addressed, but most of them you don't ever hear about. Yeah. You know, they you hear about the big groups and good for them. I have nothing against them at all. But there are all sorts of sub-issues, some of them very, very important, mm. that 
don't get any press at all. Actually, none of this gets any press at all, really. Yeah, very little. The fucking you have to make your own press. So, oh, it's so <laughs> it's so unbearable to me mm. that that there is no there are really no news services left now. Yeah, for talking about things that are actually news. Mm. Yeah, I know it's it's like it's I can't look at it or listen to it or I just have to ignore all the news. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it it's now so like a sub sub branch of social media. Mm. That's what news has become, and it's it's really difficult. I I did a little thing last week. I downloaded a chart of the thousand biggest charities in England, mm. the top thousand. How many of those do you think were environmental charities? Oh God! Like specifically, one of them, two. Friends well, of the fact, Earth and Greenpeace. Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace, World Wildlife Fund. Oh yeah, right, yeah, and and about four others, and the first of those, which is World Wildlife Fund comes in at number 41. So Greenpeace comes in at 748, I think it is. Um, Friends of the Earth at about 380. Mm. So there's so much money going to... Yeah, charitable causes. To charitable causes, and so little of it is going to this one. Mm. And it seems to me that this is the central one. Mm. This is the umbrella cause. All of, all of these other things kind of depend on that one work, being worked out. Yeah. It's quite hard to find that that thing to like the face of climate change. I think if you're, yeah. you know, it's a donkey sanctuary. There's a donkey, and you can look at a donkey, and yeah. your heart bleeds for it, and it's it's right there. I think it's quite hard to find that with climate issue. You're absolutely right. It doesn't have a face, and it doesn't. It's not sweet and cuddly. Um, the donkey sanctuaries, by the way, come in way ahead of Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. Mm. And do you know what comes in at number? Nine, I think, is the Royal National Lifeboat Institute. Oh, wow. It's hugely successful. They've got yeah. enough money. If they stopped getting any more money, they could carry on going for 60-odd years. Might not even be a planet left then. <laughs> let, yeah, yeah. let alone. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they do a great job as well, point. especially with um, sort of helping refugees. I yeah. That they do that now. No, I mean, I, I don't have anything against anyone who's mm. who's pulling in the money, but the... If you look at it and you think, is if this is a reflection of what we think are the real problems mm. on this planet, it's mm. a very, very distorted reflection. Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the things we want to do with Earth Percent really is to say, let's start building a movement. Um, mm. Let's start funding things that are making a difference mm. and that are sort of tapping deeply into this issue. I, I hope we'll be able to do that yeah i think it's it's great and one of the things is that people want to be putting their money into the most effective areas so it's but don't have time to research it and then yeah. don't even trust their own research or maybe research incorrectly because mm -hmm. we're not all experts so it's great to have that um you know that work done for people but also something i really like about it is that when as you mentioned earlier when someone makes a record someone makes a song there are tons of people involved and yes. little bits of money go to everyone. Maybe you came onto the records to do hand claps. You might get a bit of money from that record. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of considering the earth as one of the players in that record. Because right. without the earth, there wouldn't be any hand claps. <laughs> Basically, there wouldn't have been the land that you put your studio on to create it. There wouldn't have been electricity. Wouldn't, you know, mm -hmm. fundamental existence wouldn't exist. So that's actually recognised in this. It's like, okay, let's give 
the earth the points on this record that it deserves. Yeah, and we think that, you know, we're not we're not asking for a huge amount. We're not saying that anybody's going to feel that much poorer for doing it. Mm. We th- we think one percent is a, you know, mm. we'd be happy if people care to give more, but we also be happy if they give less. Mm. You know, but we think that if you take it at source, who's going to notice? Mm. Obviously, if you're a band really on the breadline, then of course you can't do it mm. but um then you just wait and we'll we'll be ready when you can do it yeah. <laughs> yeah but we think that you know with for instance we have a thing going on in the music business now which i'm sure you know about which is the selling of whole catalogs mm. huge catalogs of an artist's work and this is often hundreds of millions of pounds mm. mm-hmm. so we're saying would you really notice if 1% of that went to something else mm. um, that would make a big difference to us yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. and for those up-and-coming artists who aren't necessarily in a position to give a percent to earth percent do you is your song still going that you could play before your show and the royalties go to client earth um it still that, exists it still if exists. anyone wants to use it they're what welcome. song is it or song or piece of music it's a piece of music it's mm. not a, i can't remember the title either so we can put it in the podcast before, yeah. The, yeah, before yeah. the chat. Absolutely. We'll, f- we'll find it. Yeah. I've, I've got it somewhere. Um, but yeah, I thought that was a very simple idea. Mm, and of course, there were, it actually cost nobody anything that because mm. there had to be a song there. Is it um, a good going on stage song? Yeah. Is it like, does it get the crowd pumping? It's, it's quite good, yeah. Yeah, um, get the adrenaline flowing. So, so nobody, it didn't cost anybody anything. Yeah. yeah, for that song to be there instead of another song. Yeah, yeah. That's I, great. I love the thought that it might be playing in Club Eiffel back in Cardiff or Glasgow <laughs> ABC over the next coming weeks. Let's make that happen. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Brian, you've said that Earth Percent have said the aim is trying to raise a hundred million dollars for mm-hmm. climate causes. You obviously launched earlier this year. What What's the sort of next steps now? Is it Is it what you just mentioned, having further conversations with people within the music industry, trying to you know, I mean, the music industry is vast. Obviously, we, we can talk about record labels and festivals and artists and production or all, all these different kind of tentacles of what goes on. Mm-hmm. So is the next step on the sort of journey of Earth Percent going out and having those conversations? What's the sort of the, the next target, as it were? So we've already started having those conversations. Um, before we launched, we were already talking to people and we've got quite a few people on board already, either actually on board or mm-hmm with a commitment to join us. And of course, the other thing is we're, we're not talking only to artists. We're talking to agents, promoters, managers, record companies, publishing companies, legal music business lawyers, and so on. So we're saying to all of them, look, we're all part of this business together. Um, and you're as important a part as anybody else. So why don't you join us? So we're, we're trying to make it the cause of the music business, really, to say... Um, let's let's have a revolution, and we would love for the model to then spread to every other business. You know, it'd be lovely if it spread to the, you know, the photography business, or the or advertising yeah. world, or, or the art world. Mm. Um, in fact, we I've already started talking to various art world people mm. with a view to making it um, spreading it there. Film world is another one. Mm. There's there's no reason. It's it's a simple enough model. As I said, it's made particularly easy in the music business because we're used to dividing up 
the cake in lots of different ways. People are certainly used to taking their percentages. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> no, they've got to get used to giving some. Yeah. <laughs> That's the fun bit of making music, right? As somebody who's not <laughs> coming from the outside, <laughs> surely. Um, mm. we're, we're obviously talking about um, uh, an idea within uh, the, the music and the, the climate space here, but what do you think kind of more broadly, how do you, how do you think of music's role within the climate crisis or what role can it play within you know we already just mentioned that there's a lack of it's not necessarily reflected the urgency is not reflected in philanthropic activities it's not necessarily reflected in the type of news coverage it receives mm -hmm. so what role does can can music play in elevating the issue to where we need it to be basically this is a very difficult question because it requires such a long answer because it really requires that you answer the questions of what does art do how does it change us and I've spent most of my life thinking about that question. Mm. And as with, as with all people who spend a long time thinking about something, they find it very hard to make a simple answer. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is why books are so long. <laughs> <laughs> a, a different way of kind of coming at the, the, the question from a, from a slightly different perspective. What role do you think um, storytelling can play in changing the way that a person, people feel about a subject because the kind of climate community could almost, uh, you know, couldn't produce any more evidence about the, the severity of the situation, yeah. like, you know, numerous reports and everything else. But somehow that still doesn't, hasn't filtered anywhere near what it, we need it to. So like, what about the approach of telling stories? Does that, does that affect people? Does that get into people's minds more, do you think, than, than basically producing something that ultimately, you know, a, a very kind of evidence-based scientific quite scary report about where we are right yeah. now and could be in the future so one of the things that art does is it directs our attention towards certain things um if people start making art about commonplace objects which is what pop art did for example suddenly we start looking at those things in a different way we start mm. to see that they have value that we perhaps didn't notice before and so i think there's a huge shift going on across all of the arts towards suddenly looking at the place we come from and the roots of things in a way that we perhaps didn't do in the period of modernism. Modernism was, you know, which I would say was up until about the 1990s. Modernism was really a process of celebrating the synthetic futures we could make. Um, it was very rootless in that way. It was deracinated, you might say. Um, and I think what's happening more and more now is people are starting to value things that traditionally modernists didn't value. For instance, uh, your ethnic background was supposed to be not a subject at all in modernism. We're all citizens on this modern progressive planet. We don't have an ethnic background. So ethnicity has become an issue. Gender has become an issue. Mm. All sorts of things that weren't issues in the period of modernism, which is the period of progress with a capital P and the construction of the modern industrial world, they're suddenly back on the table now. Mm. So that's one of the ways in which art makes a difference. But it's, it's a long, slow story because it's working at such a fundamental level. Um, it's working way below the level of, you know, do we care about disposing of plastics or something like that? Um, you don't even have to ask that question if you'd done something at the lower level. <laughs> at the lower mm. level of, of course you will care about it. Mm. because you mean at a subconscious level? Well, I think these things do become subconscious, mm. yes. 
So if you feel love for the earth, mm. for instance, in the way that um, some people do, then it's, it's not even an issue of whether mm. you dump shit all over it. You just wouldn't think of it like you wouldn't think of dumping shit all over your mother. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to argue about it. Some people it, might. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't if you're listening. Um, uh, sorry for the rather crude comparison. There, but <laughs> but if, if your feelings about where you are and mm. what you should do have already been created at quite a deep level like that, then the issue never comes up for you. You just yeah. behave differently. I think art tends to work at that level. I mean, of course, there is propagandistic art where you sort of mm. say to people, don't do this or do do this, and you surround it with a bit of emotional manipulation, which mm. all artists are good at. That's what art is, really, emotional <laughs> yeah. manipulation. But I've, I've never been that fond on, of propaganda art because I think that it doesn't do the thing that art particularly does well, which is to change you quite fundamentally. Mm. It changes the reality in which you live in as well. Yes, yes. To to make you think, to make you behave differently without really even quite knowing that you're doing it. Brian, you've always spoken about the issues that you care deeply about. And and one of the reasons we, Faye and I, started the podcast was that it felt like there were a lot of people within the music community that really want to talk about climate change right Mm -hmm. now. From a kind of listening perspective, people think of like, the huge artists, Coldplay, Billie Eilish, the 1975, all have a voice on this subject. Um, as somebody who's spoken out about issues that you, you care about in the past, how um, important is it that artists have found a voice on this subject in particular? And are you, are you, have you been pleased to see that sort of grow the last couple of years? Yes, I mean, it's interesting that those three people you mentioned actually are all in discussion with us about um, being involved in with what we're doing in some way. But it's also interesting that they are also very committed to actually walking the walk as mm. well as talking the talk. For instance, Coldplay have a, made a commitment not to do another tour until they could make it carbon neutral, which is pretty amazing, you know, because mm. tours are certainly not carbon neutral at the moment. If you think of what's involved logistically of moving around all this gear and all these people... Um, and, of course, all the people who come to see you as yeah. well have to be moved around. So that's a pretty big task to s- start on. And they have they have a team of people who are working on that. So they're spending quite a lot of money on getting, trying to research this and hoping to be able to generate a model that then other people will be able to use. I bet that's made their agent pretty keen to keep working on that as well. I bet. <laughs> people are realising that you always think of music as this wonderful free thing, but actually it's carbon-wise quite expensive. Mm. And interestingly, it seems that streaming is more carbon-intensive than even vinyl records. I think if you buy a record and listen to it 30 times, or you're going to stream it 30 times, that's the threshold. If you listen to it 31 times, you might as well have bought the vinyl. Okay, that's interesting to know. That's a quick yeah. stat. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, which I, isn't that many times, really, no. when it's a record that you love. It's an, it's an area that, I mean, it, it feels like a big area of lacking in research at the moment. The stream so mm. issue. just to interrupt you for a moment, the other night I was thinking about this. So suppose we found a company somewhere 
and they had found a new way of um, encoding so that, you know, instead of um, an MP3 taking or an MP4 or whatever is being communicated in the stream, instead of that taking sort of half a gigabyte, mm. it only took a tenth of a gigabyte. Now, that would be one of those things that would make a huge difference. Mm. But that's a diff quite difficult thing to explain to someone. Oh, well, we're thinking of... Um, backing a company that is researching new encoding Yeah, techniques. to make something smaller than an MP3 and people would sort of freak out and <laughs> well, get, I think get it's a lappity about vinyl. It's just quality. once you start thinking about these things and you start to think what would actually make a difference. Mm. Um, it might be things, some technical things like that, you know. It might be a company that don't give a screw about climate change, but they just think they've got a new encoding system that... Mm they're hoping to make a lot of money from. Mm. Well, good for them. I hope they do. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it might be that that would be a very interesting thing to support if it was a new file format that reduced the carbon footprint of streaming by 70 or 80%. That's a huge amount of carbon Or a new saved. physical format. You mentioned earlier, Brian, that all of the work that's going into Coldplay's project at the moment, they will hopefully effectively create a blueprint that can be adopted by other artists. Or if not a blueprint, then at least a lot of knowledge sharing that can be passed on. There are lots of artists that want to do something that aren't anywhere on Coldplay scale, but obviously yeah. the bigger the scale you perform on, the more carbon that's produced. So do you think that the fact that Coldplay have made this commitment almost kind of brings everybody else up with them. Yes, and I, I think that's a very important effect as well. Um, well, there are, there are other people doing it. The 1975 are working mm -hmm. on this as well. And I, you too also have a sort of climate change department <laughs> um, where they're trying to discuss the same kinds of things. And I'm sure lots of other people that I don't know about. But the, the important thing about that is that you create a new sort of question that people have to answer which is am I going to engage with this or not and it becomes harder and harder to say not if more and more people are engaging with it mm. I was talking to a man a couple of weeks ago who's who's a billionaire Icelandic billionaire and he said well of course in, you, there doesn't exist now a large company in the world that doesn't have a sustainability program you just have to because it's come to be expected. He said, of course, some of them are just greenwashing, but, mm. but in fact, once they set up these programs, they start to do things with them. And they do it initially just because that's what everyone is doing and nobody mm. wants to be left out. And it's partly the pressure of their younger employees that does this. Mm. So people don't want to work in general for shitty companies. They don't want to work for irresponsible companies. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel good, you know. People feel proud working for a company that is in some way conscious of what they're doing. And so to get the best employees, to get the best of the young talent that's around, you want to be a company that attracts them. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that really attracts them. So once these things start, they tend to have a self-perpetuating effect, I think. What we hope is that this idea of filtering off a little part of your income, it's like a tithe, you know, in the Middle Ages, that's what everybody did all the time anyway. But this, we want to revive this idea so that it just becomes the thing you do. Mm. Just like if you go to church, you put something in the collection plate. Mm. You know, you, you just wouldn't think of not doing it. Mm.
I've got a couple more questions, Brian. The hypocrisy debate around climate has been... Let's just <laughs> accept that we're all hypocrites. You, you cannot live in this world without being a hypocrite. I've got a theory that the only way you could not be a hypocrite is to do the most ultimate sustainable thing, which would be to go into the woods, dig a little hole behind you, lay down, cover yourself over and just compost slowly. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're not doing that, you're a problem on the earth. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> Let's true. just accept we all have a footprint. <laughs> yeah, we all have a footprint. We, we are all compromised. We're in a compromising situation. So it's it's impossible to live a completely pure life. And the, the, the problem with the hypocrisy issue that is that it sort of turns the spotlight on you and says, look, you're the problem. You've mm. got to solve the problem for yourself. But mm. as individuals, we aren't really the problem. We're in a system that is problematic. Mm. And we therefore have to do things that are also problematic. The... This is why so much, I think, depends on systemic change rather than individual change. Of course, I think it's really part of it that individuals do change their behaviour. But the main point of that for me is not that it makes that much difference to the big problem, whether we stop using plastic straws or not, but it makes a difference to our consciousness. Mm. If we're starting to do things like that, we're thinking about it. We're on the program, you know. So so I always encourage these small local changes, mm. like riding a bike instead of having a, a gas-guzzling car. It's not because I really think your individual use of a car is going to make that much difference, but it's the kind of person you think you are. If you mm. think you're a gas-guzzling car driver, it's very likely that that attitude will spread through everything else you do as well. Mm. As soon as you think of, I'm the person who's actually thinking about the planet, so I'll make a different set of choices. And those choices tend to pervade everything else you do as well. So even though they're individually small, they start to become systemic choices if lots of people mm. are doing them. I think we're very much um, driven by those feelings of our self-image and what what party of the human population we want to mm. be to be in what group do we want to be in and i think making things very uncool is a very good strategy <laughs> um, i think it works really well i mean there was an example of it um 25 years ago or so when when people started or stopped wearing furs oh right yeah. and that had a huge impact very quickly mm. in fact there was then a sort of reaction from the fur industry to try to redignify furs but but in fact that made a big difference and you don't see that many people yeah. in furs any longer things didn't really go back no, to they didn't they were. And, but in fact what happened is actually very interesting people started making really good synthetic furs mm. and then a whole industry of outlandish synthetic furs mm. grew up so so the the response was quite creative to that and now anyone wearing real furs looks a bit daft you know yeah you think that's the least creative decision you could have made so i think um this is by the way another way in which art makes a difference mm. it sort of tells you what's interesting and cool and um promising as opposed to what's out of date and finished yeah. Individually, we all think of like what we stand to lose uh, or the planet stands to lose if uh, if we're stuck in, if, you know, if we're stuck in inertia. We don't we don't do what we need to do in time. What do you when in those moments when you think of what we stand to lose? What do you think of? Do you think about 
younger generations of family do you think about the art that won't get made do you think about the nature that won't thrive what what sort of things pass through your mind well the first thing of course is life itself you know as we look around the universe and we notice that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more we look and we notice that there are 300 trillion stars billions and billions of galaxies and as far as we know there's not life on any of anywhere else it's the only place it happened as far as we know that might turn out to be not true but so far we have no evidence of any other life in the universe and that to me is incredible so this little experiment that we're part of is absolutely unique in the universe and to me that's that says for Christ's sake look after it the second thing is that we we are looking towards a future as though we have no part in it um now this is this is quite unique in the history of humankind i think in the past certainly since settled agriculture anyway people have thought in quite long term futures people planted olive groves for instance you don't get any decent crop from an olive tree for 50 years or so so you're planting for your grandchildren mm. um we don't seem to do that anymore we seem mm. to have lost the long view we're very good at the present view but we don't really extrapolate into what that could mean in the future so i think there has to be a and i think it's starting to happen there has to be a sort of rethink you know the whole the whole climate crisis really is from the from the absence of a long view we've mm. known since the 1950s what uh, carbon in the atmosphere was doing and we still haven't stopped doing those things so uh, we value the present so much more than the future um that we're still making the same we're allowing ourselves to make the same mistakes i've been thinking a lot recently about civilization and what that actually means because i think what we do stand to lose before we lose life on earth which will take a very long time though it could deteriorate into a, a condition that doesn't include us quite quickly but there will be life on earth for quite a long time of some kind but what we could lose quite quickly is this thing called civilization and i was trying to think what is civilization exactly and i came to a very simple conclusion civilization is what we call mass cooperation it's it's when people stop thinking of themselves as individuals as only individuals and start to realize that a lot of the things they want to achieve can only be done by cooperation with larger groups and if you think about it we we do that in many many different ways you know clans tribes gangs uh guilds trade groups um colleges all these different sports clubs you know stamp collectors unions <laughs> anything these are all ways of people coming together and agreeing to um forego some of their personal freedom for the sake of being involved in mm. a in a larger project because they know in the long term that will create a world that is more suitable for them there's no there's not a sacrifice involved really it's a longer vision that says i'd rather be in a world that results from this kind of cooperation now of course from the 70s onwards you had the toxic philosophies of margaret thatcher and hayek and mm. ayn rand and so on 
which said, no, no, all that stuff is kind of socialism. Don't do it. Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. And what she was saying was that, you know, the individual is the only valid unit, really, mm. and possibly their family as well. But basically it was it was sort of demoting all of those other ways in which humans get things which done. Which may have been true for her, but certainly isn't true for the rest of us. <laughs> true for her, yeah. And Ayn Rand famously once, who who is possibly the most influential mm. philosopher of the 20th century, I'm sad to say. My description of her is Nietzsche for teenagers. <laughs> um, it's just it's so infantile. But you find that Elon Musk, mm. Zuckerberg, all those people, they're big Ayn Rand fans. Mm. And why are they big Ayn Rand fans? Because she says, effectively, powerful males are the important yeah. beings. Um, mm. And the rest of you are just in in their wake. You know, you just have to follow them. That is the philosophy of neoliberalism, mm. essentially. That's what that all rests on, this idea that the market will determine. Mm. Well, none of us really believe that the market is right. If, if we did, then we wouldn't have monopolies, commissions. We wouldn't have ways of limiting the power of the market. We would endorse child labour, for instance, because yep. in market terms it makes perfect sense. Um, but it doesn't make sense in any moral terms that any mm. of us can agree with. So, it's even so, we're we're in a chaotic system. Earth and life and humans are chaotic, and in the sort of scientific sense of the word. Yes, and this sort of mathematical system doesn't map on directly to a chaos. No, not at all. Well, I came up with this word a few weeks ago, which is <laughs> automaticism, and. It was because I had read this article by Simon Cooper in the FT. He's a very good writer, by the way. Um, I really recommend him. It's worth getting the weekend FT. It's the best paper out at the moment. So Simon Cooper was saying, was talking about anti-vaxxers and saying this was a form of nature fetishism. It's actually very similar to quite a lot of other philosophies that are getting us into trouble, um, including libertarianism. And I realised that what is at the base of all of those philosophies is the idea that we could create a system that would run itself and we wouldn't have to have anything more to do with it. it would just Everything would work out right. They're very attractive ideas mm. because it's like we found the answer. It takes responsibility away in the endless decision-making. That's right. And yet I'm saying that the point of civilization is endless decision making <laughs> that's what it's about yeah. it's it's not about creating an automatic system where we can suddenly put all the books away and go off to the beach for the rest of time it's it's about creating a system that we're constantly monitoring and adjusting mm. and this is absolutely not part of the libertarian vision or the any of the free market visions that we see. And it's not part of the back to nature either. Back mm. to nature is also about the notion that you can, you know, if you only do what nature wants, everything will be fine again. These simplistic things completely fail to recognise that we are in a chaotic system, as you mm. say. Mm. Things are constantly changing and we constantly have to be on our toes to keep up with them. So... I'm anti-automaticist, but since nobody knows what <laughs> automaticism is yet. The final thing I was going to ask about was just about, we, we keep using the, the expression, the climate crisis. Do you think the music industry, the music community is treating this moment 
as we speak, autumn 2021. Are we, are we treating the issue as a crisis and are the UK government treating the issue as a crisis? No, and I can see why. I think we should start talking about the climate opportunity because to deal with this crisis is going to take such a fundamental change in human affairs and I think will make us much, much better human beings. So it really requires cooperation at a level we've never been able to do before, global cooperation. And wouldn't it be good if we could learn how to do that? Wouldn't all sorts of other things fall into place then? Mm. If, if we succeed in solving this, we will have not only saved ourselves from the climate crisis, but all sorts of other things as well. You know, the, the massive inequality on the planet, um, which people think, well, what does it matter if there's a few very rich people? It turns out it does matter. It's quite a complicated way in which it matters. But the ecology of the system, if you think of it as an ecology, doesn't benefit from there being a few individuals who are so overpowerful. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I think we have to say the climate crisis is also a climate opportunity. It's, it's the nudge we need to reform many of the things that are wrong with our society. Um, we simply can't solve this crisis unless we address those things. And those things include all sorts of things, you know, all sorts of global justice, gender issues, all, all sorts of things have to be addressed in order to address that one. So won't that be good? Mm. You know, if we, if we succeed, mm. we'll come out, out of it with a, a much better world, I think. I the climate that. opportunity. Climate opportunity. Yeah, that's that's that. what I'm starting to talk about recently, yeah. the climate opportunity. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Are we going to make it, Brian? Well, the, you only can assume that we are. Mm. If, if you don't, then you might as well just top yourself now, really. Lay back in that little ditch and compost. Start digging. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think we will make it. The question is, what will we actually make? So there's a very good book by Mark Linus called Six Degrees. And in it, he, he just calculates, so what happens with one degree of warming? Mm. What happens with two? What happens with three? Mm. And so on. And so suddenly you realise it's not a question of do we make it or not. Mm. It's a question of how bad will things get? Mm. Where can we stop the slide? You know, we're already on the slide and we, we have to start thinking if it goes to two degrees, then these coastal cities will disappear. These areas of where currently people are living become uninhabitable, so those people want to go somewhere else. You can work out the implications mm. in each case. And, of course, each one is a more chaotic world. So, so the question is, how bad are we going to let it get? And how great an opportunity it is. To change, <laughs> yes. Well, I, I, I went, thank you for that because we need a positive spin on it. Mm. I mean, when you said, are we treating it as a crisis? We aren't really. And, and I think it's partly because it's, it's so difficult to sort of countenance mm. the complexity of the, and the blackness of the whole situation. Um, so I think the opportunity side has to be stressed a little bit. You know, all you revolutionaries who want to make a new world, here's your chance. This is why you have to do it. 
so great to hear that conversation with um, with Brian again, Faye. Uh, what, what did you leave that with, apart from an insight into what's in the shed at the back of Brian Eno's studio? Just that there's so much to talk about philosophically around resolving the issues that have kind of led to climate change and the paths out of them as well. There's um, It's just an opportunity to, to rebuild things in a more positive way. And it's there's just... It's so interesting. It's terrifying, but it's really interesting as well. It's a really fascinating problem to be faced with, maybe looking at it as a an opportunity and a problem to be solved in like really creative, interesting ways is a, a, a better way to deal with it or an easier way to deal with it and less terrifying way to deal with it in a way. Yeah, he called it the climate opportunity. And, 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 and to be able to describe that to people maybe is a useful and slightly different way of coming at it instead of the, the doom and gloom that often comes you know with this issue brian mentioned the um the selling of artist catalogs which seems to be a huge trend at the moment it's creating a lot of uh, money within the music industry kind of basically the rights to artist catalogs kind of swapping from one rights holder to to another like even just last week there was a deal for tina turner's music that was worth 225 million dollars and as brian says in that like if you were to just insert a small tap into that and just say well you know as you said right up top Faye, like the earth if we weren't on this earth and every and the abundance and everything that it gives us then that music wouldn't even exist so how about giving a little bit back to the earth if you took one percent of that deal it would be over two million dollars that would go to impactful mm. climate causes such an enormous opportunity it feels a little bit like a kind of open goal if you can kind of get the cause to the right people and we've seen it's, it's happening loads i think even just this year people like stevie nicks neil young bob dylan mm. you just think when these catalogs exchange hands if just a little bit of that of, of that money could come the way of climate causes then it would just it would stack up really really quickly and make an enormous mm. difference wouldn't it yeah absolutely but then on top of that like little bits from smaller artists as well mm. you know that on on mass is just keeps adding to that pool and, and can add up to huge amounts as well so yeah it's I mean also when it's like silly money like that like so many millions of pounds for ultimately something that doesn't physically exist which is like recording like intellectual property then it's like come on siphon a bit <laughs> come on folks <laughs> Okay, this is why I'm not a salesperson. But like, come on, man. Like, that's just, you don't need all of that you wouldn't money. Miss if, if you've got enough gone. money to buy that, you can miss a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I promised listeners that I went out to try and find um, the name of the track that Brian talked about that he composed that was played at the beginning of Coldplay's stadium concerts. I've, I've tried to get in touch with Brian to find out what the name of the title is. I haven't found it yet. And I've sort of been looking online and it's difficult to track down. But I promise on a future episode of Sounds Like a Plan, I will come with that information because it kind of could be useful. And like you said, and, and like you pointed out, maybe just a little way of everybody getting involved. If you're, if you're a musician and you play shows and you and maybe if there's some music playing before um, you go on stage or if you work at a venue or something, if you just play that out, a little bit of that PRS money will go back to, towards climate causes. So what an ingenious idea that was from Brian. Just final thing on um, our conversation with Brian Eno. I thought it was really interesting, um, the discussion and the, the points he made around the fact that climate doesn't necessarily have a relatable face in the same way that other causes do. And, and he talked mm. about his um, sort of bit of homework to go out and download the information about different charities within the UK and where we 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 send our money and, and how that maybe reflects the causes that we care about and the fact that that was really, really lacking climate causes. I don't necessarily have an answer to that. I just thought it was a really interesting discussion um, that he brought that up and was and was really kind of um, clearly 
sort of thinking about that a lot. Yeah, definitely. Where's the climate change donkey, as it were? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We need a climate change a donkey. Quick. Maybe we should just maybe we should just we should just collaborate with the donkey sanctuary. Maybe they could just yeah, we, we should do that. No donkeys on a dead planet. <laughs> yeah, it's true. No music on a dead planet. No donkeys on a dead planet. It goes for all of us. So just final note on that. I, I just want to say thank you again for um, for for Brian's time for, that he gave up to speak to Faye and I. Um, really funny knowledgeable great company not aloof at all very warm and generous and super enthusiastic what a great mind he is um also we should mention uh, a little bit more about earth percent if you do want to go and check out their work possibly even get involved it's earthpercent.com they're also on social media on twitter i know that they are earthpercent.org so go out find them follow them keep a track of what's going on with earth percent because i think it's only going in one direction over the next months and years so thank you very much to them we just want to leave you with some recommendations. Um, so, Faye, this is the part where we all, uh, we want to give people some kind of uh, information about what's something that we've seen that we like or something that's happening. So whether that's an article or podcast or app or something like that, something that's going on. So is there something that you want to recommend this week? Well, you mentioned that Brian Eno's a generous man and here's living proof because he gave me a book um, whilst we were recording the podcast. And it's called How to Spend a Trillion Dollars Saving the World and Solving the Biggest Mysteries in Science by Rowan Hooper. And it's basically how you can spend a trillion dollars to save the world, Mm -hmm. which I think when you think about something like a trillion dollars, it's a bit like thinking about infinity or like forever or... It's like, how can you picture what a trillion dollars is? So it's quite hard to understand that that amount of money could potentially fix the climate change problem. So what he does in this book is like, there's a chapter on like all these different ways in which that money could help save the world. And it just breaks it down and makes it really simple and goes through the like, well, this would be a problem, but actually you could solve it with this. So it's got going carbon zero, um, settle off planet, there's some like crazy ideas like that find some aliens, turn the world vegan, discover new reality, um, second genesis. I haven't read the whole book yet, but it's, it's really fascinating. The first one's just like eliminate poverty. So that's like pretty basic, but it does describe how you can do that with a trillion dollars, what would be the pitfalls and how you could actually achieve it. And it's, it's really positive and it just makes you think, look, money is abundant yeah. in rich nations mm-hmm. and across the world globally. So if we could organize effectively to spend the money in the right places and like take some maybe from those people who've got more than their fair share by several million times, um, then yeah, then actually it kind of breaks down these problems that seem unsurmountable, like infinity size problems in something that's actually kind of doable. So yeah, really recommend that. It's called How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. And I have a second recommendation it's a really busy time for uh, climate change at the moment with COP26 coming up. So ahead of that, Music Declares Emergency has teamed up with Bird on the Wire events and this amazing design studio called Adapt. And we're doing an event and a conference on Sunday, the 17th of October. And for those of you who are in London, you can come along to the conference. You have to book tickets online. It's climatemusicblowout.com. If you just search those three words, then it should come up. Um, and yeah, so basically the conference during the day is like loads of incredible people from the music industry, loads of positive panels and 
talks about how we can move forward as an industry. So that's during the day. And then in the evening, we've got a gig because, you know, it's the music industry. Let's have a party afterwards. And we've got Black Country New Road playing. We've got Porridge Radio, Steam Down and Skinny Palembe. And also Goat Girl DJing and some amazing special guests. So it's going to be basically all of the hottest new acts in London, playing at Earth, a massive jam with loads of musicians involved. You won't get to see it anywhere else. Head to climatemusicblowout.com or head to Music Declares Emergency's social media, which is at Music Declares on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah, and you can find out where to get tickets through there. So do come and join us. It's going to be really fun. I'll be there. Greg will be there. Yeah, yeah can't wait. Um, the elite, the creme de la creme of the climate music world will be there. So, yeah, come along and, and join, join it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, speak for yourself, man. So if you do two, I'm going to do two very quickly recommendations. Um, That's fair. So Climate Live, uh, fantastic kind of uh, music activism organisation. They've got some events happening on the 16th of October. It's kind of global plan to share some music and, and, spare, and, and share the, um, the message of urgency around our climate crisis and, and how we need our governments and people people of influence to take um, more urgent action there's stuff happening in sweden japan philippines colombia estonia like i mean across the world go and check out their social channels their climate live 2021 and, and you'll be able to enjoy some amazing music and kind of engage with everything that they are doing and the other one that i want to shout out is actually a tv show and this is a this to some listeners this will definitely be like a okay yeah like really obvious one. It's called the Earthshot Prize and it's on BBC One. It's being shown uh, on BBC One on a Sunday evening at a kind of tea time prime time slot. And that's basically why I want to shout it out. It's it's all about uh, well the Earthshot Prize as the title suggests, um, which is basically an organisation that Prince William is involved with that is uh, funding different types of uh, climate causes over the next decade, this definitive decade that we're, we're entering now um, to be able to kind of tackle this issue. And I suppose not only is it really, really brilliantly put together and some great storytelling, some fantastic people involved, Christiana Figueres, one of my heroes, uh, Sir David Attenborough is on there as well. And I suppose the reason I just wanted to shout it out is because one, I really enjoyed watching the first couple of episodes on the BBC iPlayer, but also the fact that we've got to the point where there is a show on primetime BBC One that is about climate action, tangible stuff um, that isn't just a kind of nature-based programme where the climate is kind of tacked on and, it, and it's kind of like everything's at stake here. It's something that's really thoroughly an hour each week that's about some really, really proactive, kind of sometimes quite detailed stuff that's happening. So I just want to celebrate the fact that we've got to that moment where that's being put on TVs in front of millions probably of households every week because I do think that that means we've come a long way and hopefully let's see some more of that. Definitely. Greg, I haven't watched it and I'm wondering what the format is. Is it like the Great British Bake Off but climate? <laughs> it's not, no, no. They don't. They haven't tried to put a kind of like quirky fun spin on it. I think it, it basically each episode, they've kind of broken it down into five different categories um, where they're looking at um, the climate problem from different angles. So the first one was about the threat to nature and the environment. And then the next one would be something about something else. And so they've broken up that way. It's quite a sort of documentary based, but some really, really brilliant storytelling. Um, and it's just really inspiring. You, it's one of those things where you, you watch and you're, and you're kind of like, sort of mentally making notes about things that you want to go and check out. So that is my recommendation this week. 
so yeah, all that's left is to say a uh, big thank you again to Brian Eno for coming on the podcast and all of his colleagues at Earth Percent. What an amazing organisation, what brilliant work they're doing. Uh, Faye, thanks for um, everything this week. Thanks for coming to um, Brian Eno's legendary studio and sitting in his cupboard with both of us. Um, <laughs> really, really uh, privileged and enjoyed to spend uh, that, that time with you both um, for this episode. Thanks to everyone who's been listening and supporting the series so far. And we look forward to speaking to you soon again. Thanks for streaming this episode of Sounds Like a Plan. Faye Milton was your host along with me, Greg Cochran. This podcast is made by New Allotment. You can find more about them at newallotment.com. And parts of this episode were recorded at Pirate Studios, Tottenham, London. Uh, Pirate offer a range of modern and affordable recording and rehearsal spaces at more than 25 locations across the UK. They're also in Germany and the US and they're open 24-7. For more info or to book a studio, hit the link in our show notes. This episode has been edited by Mighty Moon media and the artwork is by Stuart Stubbs our theme music was created by lightandthunder.com until next time we're together thanks for listening